Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hi, here we are again. It's another Monday. And we are on the road, but we're on the road largely to our extended family this week. We've had a week full of interesting things. I should probably say that today on our doorstep arrived the very first copies courtesy of UPS of our brand new book, The Entitlement Trap. We're kind of excited about that, aren't we, Linda? We are. They generously sent us lots of books, which we're anxious to share. And I think that uh, you listeners need to know that it'll be in the stores next week, but if you're curious, just get online and go to EntitlementTrap.com, EntitlementTrap. T-R-A-P dot com, and you'll get a little sneak preview. And actually, we really don't want to make this sound like an advertisement, but <coughs> we <coughs> better take over. Oh, see, if you start if you start advertising your books, Linda, you start coughing, you start coughing uncontrollably, so I have to take over. But uh, we are going to talk today about something that we think will be very appealing to a lot of you listeners, and that is extended families and empty nest parenting, which is a pretty exciting thing. We don't know the exact demographics of our audience on Ayers on the Road, but we expect there are a lot of you out there who either have had a child leave home already or may even have had all of them leave home already, and now you are an empty nest parenting. But You're an empty nest parent. But whether your nest is empty or just beginning to empty, I think parenting goes right on and on. Don't you, Linda? I do, and I'm back. Now you know this is live. I just choked on some water, of all things, but um, we actually did write a book called Empty Nest Parenting before our nest was entirely empty. And our youngest daughter said, what are you writing that for? I'm still here. Come on. Hello. And we thought, well, we should have really called this emptying nest because once you can see your kids are going to start to leave, it starts to be a whole new world, a whole new ball game. Now, if you're a young parent out there listening today, don't, don't tune out. Because even though we're going to talk about some issues that involve extended family and parents of the age where their kids are starting to leave home, guess what? There is a tremendously important relationship between a young parent and your parent, your own parents. In other words, between the grandparent, the young parent, and the child. And so this is a show today for parents of all ages and parents of all ilks. Um, we really hate to tell our kids how much fun we are having since they left. Now that they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> um, we really have had so much fun not having that responsibility, and we love the grandkids because we, we can t- love them and take care of them and have fun with them and then send them on home. We don't miss those kids at all, do we, Linda? Yes, Wait we do miss them. Yes, we do. But just the every day-to-day. And, and, you know, as we've said so often, uh, you know, young parents came come up to us and say, oh, it must be so great to be empty nest parents because 
your parenting is over, and you just can go off and do anything you want. <laughs> You've done your job. Your parenting's You're over. You've done. met the challenge. And we just look them right in the eye and we say, sorry to disillusion you, but uh, actually all that happens is your parenting problems just get larger and more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the truth, those of you who know, uh, because you are empty parent, emptiness parents yourself. Um, we have had a lot of fun working out the kinks, though, on this, because there you do have to talk about it as a couple and talk about it with your children who've left home. There's so many stages of leaving home, just leaving home for college and then leaving home because they have a job, a full-time job, leaving home because they're get, they're married and then having their own children. And it really is different with each stage, don't you think? Absolutely. And I, I think what... Uh what all pretty much all parents that we you know we do meet a lot of different kinds of parents as we travel around the world speaking and lecturing and i think it's quite interesting that virtually all parents feel that there's a spiritual element in parenting that it's not just about techniques or just about methods and we all we all sort of sense that parenting is something from which you're never released. In other words, you don't you don't just do it for a few years and then you're done. Families are forever. Families go on, and you know I, I actually like it when I talk to a a real senior citizen. Uh, I was thinking of an 80 year old woman I was talking to the other day, and and she she made an interesting comment. She said. I'm still a mother. That's still the most important thing I do, even though my children are now grandchildren, some of them. I'm still their parent, and I still look at them as my children. And I, I think that's quite wonderful. And I think most parents know that just because a kid turns 18 and goes off to college, you're still his dad. You're still his mother. And, and the, 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 the challenging thing, and what we're going to get into a little today, is how do you change your how do you change your stewardship? How do you alter that stewardship? Because clearly, it's a very different challenge with a grown child, a child who is an adult or who's becoming an adult, than it is when you have a little a little small family or a bunch of preschoolers. And you know, I think we need to have true confessions here right off the bat because, um, and I'm going to do this for you, honey, because. I think this is one of the hardest things that you ever did to let go and let the kids make their own decisions and not be offended when they ask when they don't ask for your advice. Um, I have to tell you that that is really hard for my husband, and um, he is so funny about giving advice. He has to give advice. He can't help himself. He has to do it. So. Um, shortly after the first kids left. Um, Wait a minute. I just have to say, Linda, it's so kind of you to say we're going to have true confessions and then go ahead and confess for me. <laughs> I thought you were going to go ahead and confess that you're like most moms in the sense that, uh, oh, no, the kids are gone, and, and I need them here, and I and I want them to be here, and they're gone. And that is very, very tough for a lot of women. And I, I'm not trying to be gender biased here. We all have different roles. But it probably is a little more common for women to sort of have the emptiness syndrome and really 
long for their children when they're gone. And it's probably a little more common for dads to sort of say, well, I'm still in charge. I'm still the manager. I still need to give advice. Kids still have to listen to me. They still need to do what I say. And, you know, we got to get over both of those things. We do. I do have to say, though, honey, that I think you were the one that was mourning more than I. After nine children, cooking for all those kids for all those years and getting all those carpools, and I was kind of pretty happy to send them off. I mean, I do miss them, absolutely. And those days were wonderful, but um, there we need to really focus on what's ahead instead of so much about what's behind. Although those memories are great, and I hope you have all your pictures and all your memories and everything, and as, as we do. But don't get off the subject, Richard. You are so bad about giving advice, and well, are good about it, I should say. But actually, is the kids kind of consider it um, a little? Well, I think some of them were a little bit offended when they were adults and gone off and trying to make decisions and so on. So we just decided to make a pact. And once we made this pact, everything's been smooth sailing, right? Well, you're kind of jumping ahead a little. I mean, you're jumping into what you think is my biggest problem as an empty nest <laughs> parent. But let me set the stage for it a little bit. We think that uh, as you consider what kind of a parent you want to be for kids as they're growing up and leaving, you, one way to look at it is to sort of say, well, there's a, there's a, there's a financial form of empty nest parenting, and those are all the questions about how much do you help them financially after they're gone and how much do you value their independence and not help them. Then there's a second thing that we sort of call um, social emptiness parenting, and that's how often do you want to be in touch with them? How many times do you call them in a week? How often do you email them? How, you know, again, how, how frequent is your contact and what's the contact like? And then... There really is something that we call emotional emptiness parenting, and that's where this this obsession of Linda's comes in about giving advice. and And maybe we can start with that one, and then I will just say there's there's one more kind, which is spiritual emptiness parenting. How how connected do you want to be to your grown children, vis-a-vis their beliefs and their their character and uh, their spirituality, but since you're pushing the emotional one, Linda, I'll, I'll admit it, it is hard for me not to give advice. If I see a, a child, whether he's five years old or whether he's 25 years old, uh, making what I think is a mistake or not considering something I think ought to be considered, it is extremely hard for me not to say anything about it. And I was for a while under the illusion that the, that I was wrong in that and that the bad I was to the degree that I was giving more advice than kids wanted. But we worked it out, didn't we, Linda, through a wonderful thing that we called the family pact. We did. And the... Okay, so Linda came in during the break and told me I sounded like I was really tired today. So I'm going to spruce it up a little and show a little more energy. I, I <laughs> well, thought I was quite lively. You got up at 5.30 this morning to get to a physical therapy appointment. I don't know if we've talked about poor Richard having um, ruined his rotator cuff and having surgery. 
few weeks ago, and I he's still recovering. Sympathy. I want sympathy. Yeah. Anyway, the form of empty nest parenting that probably creates the most problems and the most divisions in families and sort of the most controversy about how it should be handled is the financial empty nest parenting. And boy, oh boy, Linda, do we know a lot of parents who are on the extreme ends, parents who basically give their kids everything, buy them a house, buy them a car, you're out of here, son, here's another gift, and then all the way to people at the other end of the spectrum who are like, hey, you're gone, you're on your own, baby, don't call home, don't call me, I'll call you. And uh, both of those extremes have some problems. Of course, some of us probably couldn't help our kids much anyway because we're not we don't have unlimited funds, but the question of how much to help them is a pretty big question. It is a big question, and we we did a class on this down at Education Week, and, and a mom came up to me afterward and said, you know, my husband uh, agreed to lend some money, I mean, gritting his teeth because it was hard for him to lend this money to a family who needed something. She didn't say what it was. And she said he, they finally, he finally agreed he would lend him some money for this. And then he saw on the, a blog, his daughter, daughter-in-law's blog or something, that they were going on a big vacation next month. I mean, an extravagant vacation. <laughs> and she said he was so upset. He said, I, I can't believe I agreed to do that without, you know, any strings or what time to pay back or, you know, what the deal was. I just felt sorry for him and decided to lend him some money. Yeah, there's a lot of regrets on along financial lines, and for what it's worth, we're going to tell you that the the fam- we've observed a lot of families over the years and how they've handled money with their grown kids, and I think the the main thing I would like to say is that the families who have talked it through and come to a strategy, come to a conclusion about what things are appropriate for a parent to help with and what things are not and how much that help will be. And of course it begins with whether you have a little extra money or whether you can afford to help a little bit. But those families that have talked it through, that is the parents and the children, the grown children, so that everyone's clear, everyone knows what to expect, what not to expect. Those families seem to be doing well. The the places we notice the problems are where they're kind of figuring it out as they go along, and the the kids will call and say, I really need help on the down payment on this first house, or I just can't afford the rent where I want to live. Can you supplement or whatever? And the parents are sort of, figuring it out as they go along and maybe doing one thing for one child, another thing for another child, then the kids talk to each other and start realizing they're not being treated even handedly and one thing leads to another and it gets very ugly sometimes so we want you all to avoid that. And the, and the way to do it really is to, ha- to decide what you can do as a couple with your resources and then really uh, have something written, um, an understanding, have a meeting with those kids so that they understand, you know, certain things they can. Uh, we have have talked to our kids about not asking us for a, a car, a down payment on a car or, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, we just tell them to buy old junkers and then they can decide if they want to buy a car or not. Well, but, you know, really, I think the main thing that we have lent money to our kids for is the down payment on a house and education. 
And the key operative word that Linda just used there was lent, a loan instead of a gift. We Let me just tell you about one family we really admire and how they did it, and then I will let you know that we patterned ours somewhat after theirs. They didn't have a great deal of money, but they'd been careful, and they had some savings, and they did want to help their kids, and so they essentially started an LLC, a very simple little limited liability company, and that became the family bank, and they had the money there. They they were open with their kids and shared what money they had and what they thought their chances were of adding to it in the future. And then they said, essentially, this money will work a little like a bank, and there are two things that you can borrow money from the bank for. One is a down payment on your first home, because let's face it, a lot of young kids, especially once they get married, they're they're stuck in an apartment because they just don't have the money for a down payment. And oftentimes, if they had the money for a down payment, they could actually have the same monthly outflow on payments that they do on rent, but they're just lacking the down payment. So this this older couple thought that's one thing we'll help with. And they had a limit on how much would be there for each child if they wanted to borrow for the down payment on their home. And here's the great thing. It was an interest-free loan. And you say, well, how do you, how do you repay that? Well, their deal was when you sell the home, we will expect you to pay back that money. And being a first home, being a starter home, they anticipated that would not be too many years, and then that money would flow back into this LLC or this family bank and be there for the next child that wanted to buy a home. Now, the other thing that they did in their case is they said, you can borrow a matching amount for your education. In other words, they didn't want to pay their kids' education. They wanted the kids to say, we will earn what we can, we'll get government loans where we can, but whatever we come up with, the family bank will match that amount and we will be able to get through our school with a minimum of government and other borrowing because we'll have that half coming from the family. But again, the deal was that once they had a good income, they would then work out a repayment schedule to replenish the family bank. And the parents said, look, by the way, one reason we want the bank replenished, the family bank, is that we intend to use it for family reunions and family vacations. And if, if, it, if it empties out, that'll limit our ability to do those fun things that we all like to do. Now, I'm not saying that's the best plan or the only plan, but, but my point is they had a clear plan. The kids knew exactly what it was. They didn't come asking for their parents for other kinds of help because it was clearly outlined. Everyone knew the expectations. And when that happens in a family, it usually works out very, very well. It really has been interesting to see. I mean, we have nine children, and the financial stuff has gone nine different ways. You know, with every kid, it's been a different situation. We have one. Our youngest is still not married and on her own in San Francisco. She's taking care of herself. But there are a few things she's needed a loan for. But, you know, it does hang over her head, which is fine. But, but Linda, don't say, don't don't misunderstand what Linda's saying. We we have nine kids who have different financial 
levels of ability and levels of resources but we don't but we, but there's a there's a sameness and a fairness in terms of what they know they can borrow for and oh, what sure. they know they can't. Yeah. And and having that even handedness, that fairness of course is very very important now. I'll just say one there are many many families listening who are saying, well, that would be fine if I had any extra money at all, but it's a struggle these days just to get by from month to month. I'll tell you something <laughs> in in some ways families with very very limited resources and I don't I don't want to say this in the wrong way and offend anyone but they almost have an advantage because the kids then feel wow my mom and dad have done their best they've raised me they've taught me many many things they don't have a lot of extra money I'm on my own I need to to make my own way and and honestly sometimes that's for the best there, we know people on the other end of the spectrum where they, they do have quite a few resources. The kids know they have quite a few resources. And if they're not careful, that begins to undermine their kids' motivation and initiative because in the back of their minds they know, ah, you know, mom and dad will always bail me out. And that's, or, not, that's not a good thing. Yeah, or I know I'm going to have this inheritance, and so I don't really need to work so hard because I know there's a lot coming to me at some point. And you can get so far as to feel like kids are hanging over you waiting for you to die. I mean, that's the extreme. But still, there, money sometimes is a real detriment in empty nest parenting. So we've talked a little about emotional empty nest parenting, a little bit about uh, financial. Social, I'll tell you one thing. We are so grateful, and we're not, we're not techno wizards by any stretch of the imagination. But boy, are we grateful for Skype, and boy, are we grateful for email and for blogs, and even for a site you may not have heard of called uvu.com, O-O-V-O-O.com, where you can actually, it's like Skype, but you can get up to eight people on your screen at once, and you can have a family home evening from a great distance. You can have a family meeting with all of your kids However many you have, unless you have more than six, you can get them all on screen at once and talk to them. So use, I, I think I'm just giving you a simple bit of advice, speaking of advice, use technology to stay in close touch with your children who are not living at home and are not close enough to come to dinner every weekend. Yeah, our kids, we do have one family that's close enough, I mean, within an hour of our house. Um, all eight others are gone and far flung, three on the East Coast, three on the West Coast, two in Phoenix. And it really is um, difficult in some ways. If we didn't have the Internet, I think we'd be dying. But we really are in close touch. I mean, not only that, but electronics, our older grandchildren, teenagers, have phones, and I can call them and say, yay, you made the volleyball team. That's awesome. Or and, you can text them. They're even text more likely them. to get That's it. That's right. They, they'll, they love that. Um, but we have a family site at, on Yahoo Groups. And By the way, let's talk about that for a minute, Linda, because that's so easy to set up, yahoogroups.com. And for one thing, it reminds you of every birthday, and today just happens to be the birthday of our 10-year-old granddaughter, Aniston, and so we've written her a note, and all of the, most all of her aunts and uncles and several of her cousins now have written her a note, and it goes on that Yahoo group sign, and so all the rest of us read it, 
And it's not as good as all being there for her birthday party, but it's probably the next best thing. It really is. It's such an enormous advantage, which we never had. I, I don't. My grandparents all died when when I was just a young child, so I don't remember really having grandparents that cared about me and so on. And I think that really makes a huge difference in children's lives. Yeah, I really do too. So, so think a little about have a strategy also for social empty nest parenting. Have have a meeting or have a conversation or a Skype call and ask your children, your grown children, how often do you think we ought to talk? Don't don't impose yourself on them too often. Ask them what's a good time. Do you want to have so, do you want to have a set time each week when we talk? Do you want to just keep it casual, get the kids input and kind of have a a real strategy for how you're going to handle this communication and you know what every once in a while forego the electronics altogether and write a real letter to your kids in your handwriting i guarantee you that is unique in these days and your kids will say wow a written letter i haven't seen one of these for years and they'll probably pay attention to it and they may even save it yes in fact i have saved letters from my father who wrote very few and who was 54 when I was born, and so an older dad, and I treasure every word that is written to me on those pages. And I didn't get very many either. But I I have to add that Richard commented, don't call at 7 a.m. on Saturday morning. Yeah, we we knew one family that the poor kids were saying, oh, Mom and Dad think they're doing such a wonderful thing. They call us every Saturday morning at 7 (laughs) a.m. Now, before we totally run out of time, Linda, let's just say a quick word about spiritual empty nest parenting. Um, The best families we know do share their faith with each other. They do talk about their beliefs. They do, not in a way hopefully that's compulsory, but they do try to do that when they can. And and just so you'll know, you loyal listeners, we'll, we'll occasionally devote a weekly show to empty nest parents or to grandparenting or other things like that, even though our main thrust week in and week out will be parenting techniques for those of you with kids still in your home. But this week we give a special thanks and heads up to those of you who are empty nest parents and those of you who are objects of empty nest parenting. We appreciate you all, and we'll see you again next week.